Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. Author Robert Lukens has a deep connection to the cold solitude of an English winter, setting his debut novel The Everlasting Sunday within a manor house for troubled boys as the great freeze of the 1960s began. This is a confident story of equal grace and menace, capturing the bleak isolation of a seemingly endless snowstorm and the often heartbreaking conflict of young boys surviving each other to eventually try and become young men. Hello, Robert. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> no problem. Thanks for having me. Now, Robert, this this book seems to have been informed by your experiences in Shropshire, which mm. is a small village in the West Midlands of England near Wales. And there's a moment in the book where you've actually referred to how a character say the past has powers. What level of power did that experience that you had in Shropshire have over this book? Well, it was a, it was a founding moment of this book, really. It was... It's interesting, the, the origin of this book has a very specific uh, origin moment, actually. So I was in about 2002. I've never actually quite worked out what year it was. It's all sort of in the fog, foggy past. Um, well, I was, I've got you writing that it's in 2002, <laughs> so I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> Let's go with that. At some point I decided on that. Um, yeah, and I was living in this, this tiny little border village in, in Shropshire um, working as a postman. So I turned up in this town and there was a a handwritten sign in the pub window that said, just said postman wanted. So I went down the post office and I'm a postman. And so I would, uh, every morning at about three o'clock in the morning, I would trundle off down to the post office and turn the single light bulb on and sort the mail and um, put on my big jacket and my balaclava and my headlamp torch and get on my raw mail push bike and, and, and head off into the cobble streets of this little town. And um, I would deliver the mail through the streets throwing, following the route and at the end of every shift the, the final delivery was always the same. It was about three or four miles out of town. Um, I'd have to go up through the hills, through the empty grazing fields and through the fog and the darkness. The sun hadn't risen yet. And yeah, about four miles out of town, it was quite a slog, was, and through the fog this, this great, incredible, beautiful manor house would appear through the fog. Um, honestly, like a bride's head revisited kind of uh, kind of thing. And but as you got closer, you would see that this place was crumbling and it was overgrown with vines, and this thing was in a state of decay. Um, I found out later it had been um, abandoned since the war, um, but still getting junk mail. So someone had to deliver it. So so there is life after death. <laughs> it just involves junk junk mail and the occasional bill. So someone must have been popping by, and I would so I'd go up and I'd put the mail through the slot. And something about that moment, I would go back and stand in the shadow of this house as the, the sun was first rising, uh, rising on the horizon and sort of giving life to these white open fields and the birds would start to sort of twinkle in the bushes. And it was such, such an intense moment and it was so beautiful but also very lonely and very loaded with a, with a kind of menacing atmosphere. I think it was something to do with where I was in my life at that time. Like, what on earth was I doing in this town? Um, and it's been such a strong memory for me. And in some ways, it's the strongest memory I have in my whole life. And 
Why, why do you think that is? Because you have referred to it as a beautiful and frightening mm. place. Mm. What do you think it was that stayed with you or that captivated you at the end of this, you know, almost a day's long journey mm. out there each day? Yeah, it's a funny thing. It's like everything seemed to collapse in that time. I think it's, it's something about I was in this quite, it's what felt like an ancient land. I was looking out at a, at a horizon that could have been this, could have been there a thousand years earlier, but it was 2002. I was this Australian there. I probably had a CD Walkman, you know. There was a strange collapse of time out there. There was a sort of condensation of ideas and this great house that was once great but was now dragged into the future and was crumbling. It's like it had come through a time machine and it was like a brundle fly. It had come through the other side and wasn't quite the same anymore. And I, I think it just concentrated all of my thoughts and all of my worries and all of my past and all my ideas of what the future might be. And that's a, that's a scary thing. I suppose it was that point in my life I was, again, what was I doing standing at the crest of this snowy hill in, in looking out across the Welsh border? Um, and I think it was that fear of the past and fear of the future and just some kind of strange dislocation from the world. I suppose it's that idea of trying to tether yourself down to the world or to being alive or what that is and what we choose to tie ourselves to. And I suppose in that moment I was in some ways very romantically tied to this place. These are the kind of images that I grew up with. My family are all British, my brother and sister are Welsh. Um, but Shropshire, Shropshire itself is, is also a place of myths and legends mm. by the very nature of it, which is where they claim that King Arthur <laughs> is from. <laughs> yeah, and it's that kind of place. And it's interesting, if you go there now, being in that little village in Shropshire in 2002, it may as well have been 1962, it may as well have been 1862. The, you, you get the feeling that not a lot had changed in that place with the people and the, the animals and the weather and everything around that place all just kind of existed in this strange... It was like time didn't affect that place. It was like you are in some strange temporal vortex where things were coming in and out. And it really was a slight... It was, and as I said, it was that strange mix of being incredibly beautiful and tied to these often kind of mythical childhood images. You know, it's watching Inspector Morse. It's watching... It's stories my parents had about growing up. It's wind in the willows kind of stuff. But then at the same time, this is a, you know, this is a modern town. It had a... That town had a big heroin problem. There was, uh, you know, they had betting shops on every corner. It was 2002. I had, you know, um, I brought all the my modern worries to that place. So it just existed in this strange kind of slightly unsettling um, place for me. And I suppose it was just all those thoughts coming together. And it was something about standing there at the end of my day's work. It was, it was a completely peaceful place. It was that kind of piece where it felt like it sort of washed through me and took all the sort of dirt out of me and I felt cleansed. I kind of, it was kind of like being born out in that place. Um, but at the same time, that emptiness is a threatening thing. That surrender to your life and where you are and what you're doing, that surrender to the uncertainties of the past and the future, it's a, it's, it's a relief to do that, but it's also frightening. You're just bobbing around in the ocean and, and you know this is this is life isn't it that try to how do you how do you reconcile that idea of surrender and and knowing the sort of absurd nature of what we're doing how do you be okay with that and should you be okay with that it's just that strange kind of both those things coexist i think and 
um, it's probably all sounding very grand, but in, <laughs> in that moment, standing there looking out in those fields, I suppose it was the first time that all those kind of ideas, and it wasn't a conscious thought process, it all just came crashing down on me and I just felt this intense sort of coldness in my bones in that, in that place. And that wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but it was something that I've ca I carried with me ever since. So, mm. uh, And it's definitely informed the nature of the setting for the book as well, which mm. is about a broken manor house for broken boys in its mm. truest sense. So a lot of these ideas that it, it provided solace for these, for these young boys as well as a growing sense of menace or the potential for menace as well. It seems to have really stayed with you for such a long time. And I'm interested in why it stayed with you, considering that you didn't start writing this book for many years later. Mm. And you've also written about 18 books in between, which we still haven't seen <laughs> oh, published. I don't like to put a number on it. It's, <laughs> it's funny writing a lot of books. You tell your friends you've written one book, they say, oh, that's, that's great. You say two, they go, wow, you know. As that number starts, there's a certain point where that number stops being impressive and it starts being a <laughs> symptom. <laughs> you know? So, um, but yeah, I, I, have, I wrote a lot after then. And it was really, I'd been writing, like I wrote my first, I attempted, I wrote my first novel when I was a teenager and have basically dutifully every year since then written the first draft of another novel, just trying to learn how to write. It was never about... I, I wanted more than anything eventually to be a to be a writer, uh, but it was always I always thought the vehicle to that was writing something that I was very proud of, or something something that where I finished what I started, where I created a complete thing. Um, and so it's interesting that you so, say, yeah. So this memory and this feeling never left me of that house, and the reason it took so long to write it was that this was the first book where. Every, every other thing I'd written at the end of it, I, I knew immediately that it wasn't, it hadn't worked in a way, in that why? I hadn't finished why, why what I started. Why did it not work? Is I think by necessity. I think, I think I, was, I, was tr I was doing what you're probably supposed to do in a three-year creative writing course, <laughs> in that I was trying out different voices. I was trying out different approaches. I was seeing what, what I could do with language, but I was also learning. It was about learning how to write through writing, which seems to me the most natural thing. Learning to play guitar, you play guitar. Uh, and you don't expect the first song you write when you're 17 to be, uh, you know, the one that you send out into the world. Well, I was going to say, I think at 17 you do think that the one you write <laughs> is the one you send out to the world. Yeah, I think I was very, I suppose, I don't know, I think maybe it's to do, with, I grew up in a very bookish household. My brother and sister both worked at the library and my first job was at the library. We lived at the library. Books were always around, so I suppose I never had that. It always seemed natural to me that you could, I could write a book. Someone has to do these things. Um, I always thought, so I suppose I never had that barrier where I thought, oh, you know, so the magical people write books. I thought, I write books, you know, I can, I can do this thing. But I think I was attached to a kind of romantic, childish idea that, you know, life is short. I wanted to make something that I think's, and it's funny, I really hesitate. I wanted to make something beautiful. And I hesitate to say that word because I, you know, state school kid from Queensland, you don't, you don't go out into the world trying to create beautiful objects. Um, and when I say beautiful, I don't mean that it's, uh, you know, I suppose I just mean beautiful in that it's completely flawed, but it, it is itself. It's a, it's a three-dimensional object and I'm so proud of it and I finished what I started. It was the first time where I 
set out to write something and when I got to the end I thought I've let this thing become I've, I've brought this thing that I've been trying to bring into the world and it and it here it is well I've heard you say that you you wrote this with your with the truest sense of your dumb heart what do you mean by that is it just operating on instinct or just that you gave it everything that you could give it was both but it was it was the first time I thought I just thought right I've been reading and writing my entire life it's all I've devoted I've let everything else fall by the wayside because this has been the thing that I love to do and I thought when if not now when I finally just thought what am I made of as a writer I've been practicing I've been writing these novels every year I've been reading and reading and reading but I've never really sort of taken a taken my literary temperature and thought where am I up to so for the first time, instead of adopting, instead of viewing the book as an exercise, I thought, I, you know, I'll try and write a, you know, my David Foster Wallace book, or I'll try and write my um, Helen Garner book, you know. I thought, I'm going to go to this with no ideas and a blank page, and I'm going to see where I'm at. And so instead of adopting voices or uh, over-intellectualising the process of what the story is going to be about and themes and structure... I thought, what if I just go to this with a blank page and see what happens, see where I come out? So for the first time, I gave myself a license to just write in the voice that is my internal voice. So the, the style of this book, and it's interesting because a lot of people that I've spoken to about this book note the style. Yes, well, the language, it's very evocative, it's very rich, and it's, it's got its own cadence. It really... Mm. The whole story is told to a very specific rhythm, which I would say is a very unique rhythm, and it mm. takes more from the reader. It takes a bit more effort from the reader to mm. get into it and stay with it, but it's it's rewarding even more mm. so for that. But I have heard you say that that's actually your internal monologue. This is how I... <laughs> so I find which, it very... Which I need some explanation <laughs> for. I think it's... Uh, well, I think as well, I was trying to write in, in as you said... It was as close as I could get to an instinctual style. Like I'm a rational creature. I know that instinct to some extent doesn't exist. I'm, I'm creating these sentences in my head. I'm doing it in a rational way. But what I enjoy about writing are those moments where you suspend that belief. So it feels like instinct at the time. It, it, it's like when you're dancing and the music's, the music's going. I'm not, I don't dance. I imagine this is what it's like if you dance. Um, <laughs> You're not thinking, all right, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. It feels like instinct. At some level, you are commanding your legs to do these things. I'm mechanically, I am right, putting these words together. But I'm doing it in as much as I can a way that feels free and feels like instinct. And I suppose to, in terms of style, this must be, I imagine, the product of a lifetime of reading. It's a style that I don't think is the 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 vogue style at the moment i don't know what this style is and i find that very interesting when people respond to the um like you said the cadences and the speed of it and the um and the well i suppose just the style is that i'm not conscious of what it is it's not a construction i'm not i'm not trying to write a dickensian novel or but i'm going to challenge you on that because it does at times have that dickensian feel because it almost feels timeless, even though it's set in 1963, which was the great freeze of London or of Britain at that time in the 
most significant freeze since about 1720 or 1740, yeah. I think it was. Yeah. You know, there were people skating out the front of Buckingham Palace yeah. and the Thames River had frozen <laughs> over and there were even parts of the ocean that had frozen yeah. during this period. Um, but except for the inclusion of a few bits and pieces like a record player uh -huh. or a reference to a car, you can easily put this 100 years back or more. Yeah, absolutely. And that was really important to me. And I suppose that's a reflection of, as I said, the whole story, the style, the characters, everything about this story is to some extent an attempt to recreate that very specific atmosphere that I literally felt standing in front of the letterbox of this house in that place. So when did, when did you build the story, though? So you, you have the setting, you have the scene, you have mm. the feel of this, but what about the characters themselves? So when you bring to the table this sense of Radford and West mm. and um, Teddy, etc., when did they come to you? When did they visit you? Day, day one of writing, really. So I, have, I, have, I went into this with literally not a word or thought of plot or characters. I didn't know who was going to be in this story but I had such a strong idea of this house. I know this house. I know this feeling. I know the atmosphere. I, I know the world on, in which these characters are going to live. And I, I, it's funny, I often, and theatre is, is something of a motif through this story. And I think it's because I just, I visualise this story as a small, dusty stage in an old church hall. I built this place and I turned up on day one, I sat down in front of the place and I, I knew this stage and I could see it. And it really, it felt like just pulling the curtains back and having a look around and describing what I saw. And I, and I know I invented these characters. I understand that's how the human mind works. But I spent 20 years and my whole life getting to a point where I could write in a way where it didn't feel like that. It really felt like I went into this house and these characters were there and and that seems like a silly thing to say and, and it seems a bit trite but that really is how I experienced it I have there was definitely no moment where I sat down with a piece of paper and mapped out some characters and even coming down their names uh, my guess is as good as yours where these things come from so therefore let me ask this there's something that I, is very specific in the book which is the characters don't share a lot of their backstory mm. so we don't know a lot about them apart from what is before us right now so very much as you've said like in a performance in a play or a chamber piece we only know what they tell us or what they share with each other was that a very deliberate choice yeah absolutely um i could, i know everything about all of these characters i, I know why they're in this house um, I know their pasts, I know their futures, I, I know them so well. But one of, I suppose one of the central ideas of the story is that these, these characters don't have a lot because of their circumstances, because of the lives they've had or where they're from. Materially, they don't have much, but something that's incredibly powerful is the, that you have your own story. Choosing who you share that with and to what extent and when is an incredibly powerful thing. Um, and I suppose I feel that in life now where for a lot of us we feel like we're in a world where there's some pressure to live a shared existence, to, to, to you're supposed to be living out in the open. And it's not about repression or stiff upper lipness or anything to do with that the contrary and if you and you'll know from reading this book these aren't repressed this isn't a, a story about repressing feelings there's feelings pouring out all over the place 
But it's that idea that, you, you know, you can pour yourself out like a jug of water if you want, but the power of that that's in your command is a really powerful thing. And I suppose I extended that to me sharing the story of all of these characters. I feel very protective of them. And I suppose, and it was important to me that, look, it's even the people in our life, our loved ones, our parents, our partners, everyone, we just know the parts of their stories that they've shared with us. And we know the parts of their stories where they intersect with ours. And that's my experience of what, what life is. So in this story, there's a lot happening off the page, you know, in the wings, as it were. And the bits of the story we get are where these where two stories intersect. Um, and I find it really interesting to think of these other... I imagine, it's funny, again, I, I think very visually about when I'm thinking about this story, I imagine a series of, of circles that all make a ring and in the centre of that you could draw a broader circle where you just get the edges of everyone's circle and that's... And that's this story, but that's what—that's how I experience life. That's how I think things are. And you get the version of other people that they want to give you. You get where your lives butt up against each other or or harmonise. But a lot of it happens off the page. This really does look at the the nature of friendship, and certainly the friendship between young boys growing up together in a house where they've been forced together. And to this point that you've just made, one character at one point turns to the other and says, I, I don't need to know your backstory. You know, that's your power. You can share that when you're ready. What 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 did you want to communicate though when talking about friendship? Because friendship in this environment for these young boys is difficult. Mm. It isn't necessarily an easy thing to achieve it's almost earned and mm. even by the end of the book you don't you don't get a good sense that perhaps they all were true friends they mm. just had to survive each other mm. yeah again i think you've well you've hit the nail on the head really and i suppose and part of that about this isn't a book of answers this isn't even the house itself so this is essentially just an empty share house out in the field that all these boys have come together in through circumstance and I'm not saying that's a good idea it's it's what happens in in that sort of petri dish environment and again I suppose and some of these things it's interesting because a lot of this is about me looking back at the story I've made and deducing in the same way that a reader might what what do these things mean because I didn't go into this with a series of themes or messages I was trying to get across I, I suppose I don't particularly enjoy that in the reading that I do about I'm not I don't go to books for answers I go to find people who have similar questions to me or different questions um uh, yeah and again the experience of these people crammed together into a space and being forced to coexist and the tensions or the harmonies or the love or the violence that stems from that that's life that's how I experience this is you know, you share 30 square metres of carpet with people you barely know every day at work. You go home and you share 20 square metres of carpet with people you know a bit better. Um, again, it's about those intersections and what happens. And I suppose in this house, because of the scenario I've built, and, I, and I've realised later, I think it's a bit of a... I read a lot of Agatha Christie when I was a kid. <laughs> My mother's oh, bookshelves was essentially... This explains quite a bit. You know, and it's a bit of an old trick, isn't it? Stick them all in an old house, have the storm arrive and see what happens in the house. Uh, but in that way, it's a compressed environment. So this is a microcosm of, of people forced to interact with each other. And so 
all the rough edges that create sparks or all the, the where two matrices intersect all has to happen in this place um, just by necessity of time and geography and, and where they are. So, Well, there's a nice framing device that says a basic, at one point there's a moment that suggests the boys, that the role of the boys in this, in this house is to look after each other. That's their job is to get each other through this period of time. So why did you pick the particular big freeze, though? Because it is such a visceral um, mm. uh, sort of visual, I should say, um, event yeah. because of the scale and size. Did you want something that was just absolutely consuming? It's interesting. It's, it's a couple of things. It's So when I went to this story, again, like I said, I went to, to a blank page and I was just going to give myself a license to let my subconscious reach for those things in my mind there were a lot of loose ends in my mind and this story to some extent is about tying a lot of them together and so my mind in that moment when I was thinking about where this story was going to be set it went to that house that I've been carrying around in my head for 20 years and when I was growing up on the Sunshine Coast I remember going through my parents photo albums and seeing shots of my grandfather digging the car out from under the snow and my father going down the roof of the house on a toboggan and it was the big freeze this is the this is the winter that my parents lived through my grandparents did and when you're an eight-year-old kid on the sunshine coast hearing stories of not going to school for two weeks because you couldn't get there because of the snow these are the kind of things that stick in your head it's, it's almost like living on the moon there's almost no <laughs> sense of concept of, of, of the south of the sunshine coast and snow yeah yeah so i suppose again my my mind I wanted to isolate all of these characters in every way I could. So I isolated them in geography, so I stuck them out in the, in the Midlands in this house. Uh, I isolated them by the weather. Um, I isolated them in time, so I knew I didn't want to have it set in a contemporary time setting because, again, I wanted to build this small stage that I knew every square inch of. For this story, it couldn't have a, a huge rambling um, stage on which it was performed because I would have completely lost control because I was trying to write in this what again what it felt like an automatic writing process I had enough to deal with trying to do that I needed a small parameters to set it in but the other thing I realized was that I, I suppose in, in part of my writing practice is that I think I write better when I'm disrupted in some way I don't think having a very comfortable thought of what I'm doing or even a comfortable environment around me when I'm writing it doesn't help me and again this isn't good advice for other writers this is just how I've learnt that I write best I, I need to be unsettled in some way and so part of it was that I'm, I'm a, uh, a big Julian Barnes fan he's he's one of those real pillars that holds up my house uh, and I remember reading an interview with him where he talked about his first novel which was called Metroland but for a long time, the working title of that novel was No Weather because Julian Barnes is very suspicious of significant weather. So the family coming back to the old family house when the matriarch is dying and the storm comes in and it represents the storm of this family. And so I thought, all right. And again, part of it is about me. Okay, I very consciously wanted to not try and ape these other writers that I admire. So I thought, what can I do to make sure I don't try and pick up any of Julian Barnes's ticks? So I thought, all right, he doesn't like significant weather. I'll set my whole story around a piece of incredibly significant weather. So part of that was about me disrupting my flow and trying to take myself to different places. So 
uh, again, the main thing was just this subconscious memory of seeing these pictures of my father tobogganing down the side of the house. My mind went to that place. And it's such an interesting time too. So 1960, if you're a teenager in 1963, you were born just after the war. You're one of the first boomers really. And it's that time that's often regarded as the birth of the teenagers. So if you're 17 in 1963 you're really the first generation after the war that's come through this was the winter that the beatles released their first single um, this was the winter that sylvia plath took her life in because she came to england and and there's lots of talk about in the circumstances she was in and then being stuck in this house because of this weather and looking out at the big freeze that fed into what happened to her that winter so it's it's a point in history that has always interested me. I think there's lots of lines intersecting at that time. Um, and so I suppose just all those things together felt like a fertile place to trap my characters in, to see, see how they responded to each other. Let me ask you this, because the book has such a distinct sense of place. Um, but you yourself has, have written about the fact that you've lived in Australia, you've lived in Great Britain, Britain and parts of Europe, and yet you felt equally not quite at home in all of them. Yeah. And you seem to share that, though, with some of your characters because they, they themselves just aren't sh sure of their place and their mm. certainty of where they should be or where they should go. And that seems to permeate throughout all of the characters, the young and the old. So was that you genuinely bleeding into these characters at that point? Look, I, su I suppose so. Um, and, and that is true. I... I've never felt that connection to place that I hear a lot of other people speak about. Um, and it is interesting because this novel is so deeply tied to its place, even as I've anchored it so concretely to this place. But as you, as we, you were discussing before, this, this could have happened any time and to some extent it could have happened in any place. It would have been very easy to have them endlessly listening to the Beatles and talking about <laughs> 1960s. And I suppose in that sense, it's and I found it interesting because I had someone the other day I saw in a bookshop it was filed under historical fiction. And I thought, wow, I've written, <laughs> I didn't know I've written a historical fiction book. And it's because to some extent all those, I had as, I had as few markers of the time as I could get away with. It, this wasn't about making you feel like you're living in 1962 over that summer. Um, that wasn't the point of this story. Uh, and again, it, they're dislocated in time and they're dislocated in geography. So to some extent, by, by the mechanics of this story and having them in that house, that house could be on the moon to some extent. And for these, these boys, it may as well be. They've been thrust out into the cold, into the snow, into this, this rural environment. It may as well, they may as well be floating in the middle of the ocean. And, um, it's interesting thinking about what parts of me have bled into this story because I suppose to some extent I feel that kind of um, writer's defensiveness where I want to say, I'm not in this. This is all, I'm a writer. This is all invention. You know, I can write about more than just my own experience. Um, but inevitably, I think because of the, the manner I approached writing this story, you know, I'm, I'm all through this story. But so much of it was about me consciously trying to avoid that. So I want this is a completely f fictitious environment. They're fictitious people as much as I can. But I guess because of the manner in which I did it, in the same way that I think any writer 
implants their DNA in all these all these stories. So it's interesting to me looking at some of these things now. I feel quite exposed by some of them. It feels a little bit <laughs> like I'm going through therapy sessions every time I sit down to talk about it because because inevitably there are mark. I suppose they just feel like markers to me where I and I find it interesting too because I wrote this story in a in a very compressed amount of time and a very compressed uh, method, so I gave myself no time to think about it while I was writing it. Was that specifically important to you to to put a deadline on yourself to force you to get this done? Uh, not really. It wasn't about deadlines. I've always had a complete puritanical streak when it comes to this writing. I have no d- difficulty getting words on the page or forcing myself to write. That's all, and I think that's through nothing but practice. Um, and for a long time in my 20s I worked as a freelance arts writer so volumes never a problem I had you know um, getting words on the page isn't a problem it was just the way this story came out it it came out in the freest quickest way I've ever experienced in writing and I think it was all about that method I employed of not interrupting myself with intellectualizing the process just letting it come out and every time I thought of my old habits of uh sitting down and thinking of it as a writing exercise, every time those kind of thoughts tried to intervene, I would push them away and just let myself write in. I wanted to write my first novel. I was trying to write in how I think you're supposed to write your first novel when when you're 17 and you think, I could write a novel. It just took me 20 years to get to a point where I could do that. Um, But I was, with any luck, some of that lifetime of reading and writing found its way way into it i suppose i like to think i got i tried trained myself to get to the point where i to whatever quality it is i can write i can get words down in a way that feels very easy to get them down um and it is what it is i I, again i'm it's a bit of a it's like i've been at school for 20 years and this is my i sat down to do the, the they put the clock on for two hours and they say write an essay about something and this is it so you finish the exam and then it gets hand, handed to the markers, <laughs> which is essentially mm. your editors. Mm. And you, I, I'm quite compelled, I'm fascinated by this. You went ahead and published some of the comments that your editor <laughs> had my given poor, you. My poor editor, Mr. ENC, who, who I genuinely think, and I've spoken to other people, I think he might be, he's definitely one of the best editors in Australia. I'd say the world, but I don't know anywhere, anyone else outside the world. But, um. but, but that open wound nature <laughs> of exposing these red markers, I did want to ask you about one particular quote, which mm. really for me sums up your book, which was the, your editor wrote, I wonder if the moon should be brighter. <laughs> and what so a, explain, explain that to me, please. What a gift to have been given to have an editor that even can thinks in in such a way and that was and again that's come well it's it's a strange thing so this is published by university of queensland press and they're the only publisher i this ever got sent to um they've always been the publisher i wanted to work with um somewhere along the way i'd picked up the idea that they were had a very heavy focus on editing and i suppose on getting the work ready before publication and and i and i knew on some level that i needed that because all my focus has been on, I'm a first draft writer. I've spent my life learning how, teaching myself how to write first drafts. Um, I'm not quite, you know, after that, it's a bit of a mystery zone for me. Um, so I knew I wanted a place that could hold my hand to some extent and take me through that process. Um, and just as luck would have it, I found 
Mr. ANC, who is my fairy godfather in all this, um, because he completely harmonized with what I was trying to do. Um, he took it for what it was and every single uh, edit, every single comment, every single thought he had about this took it closer and closer to its original intention. I felt every, it's like we were going down a funnel. Every time we wrote, it got closer and closer and we got further and deeper down. And he was finding things in there that I, I wouldn't have uncovered. Um, really important parts of the novel that were just little moments for me. He, he, he helped me finish my thoughts. That's, that's the end feeling I have of the editing process. He, it wasn't, it was, there were no moments of um, butting up against each other, even just in ideas. And that's not that he wasn't ruthless. He was, he's, unbel he's such a kind gentleman, but he's, he's, he's got a red pen with a large reservoir. Um, he's not afraid of a heavy edit. Um, but it was all about pushing me to finish thoughts. And I suppose that's part of the fact that I wrote it very quickly and I wrote it in a very free style. There were some loose ends that needed... Um, well, actually, it's interesting. It's not a, Actually, there was probably some, some knots that I'd made that he wanted to cut and make more... Uh, oh, really? So it's more like, look, you shouldn't be tying all these ends yeah. off. Let, let's let this breathe. Let it be a bit more realistic. To your point, which is real life doesn't have solutions mm. all the time. Yeah, and so the the editing process was quite shocking to me at the start. Just the literally just getting back that first major copy edit, which is going through line by line and making cuts or suggestions for that. Um, uh, yeah, it was a it was a completely melodramatic scene at my house <laughs> that night. It really was, and I suppose it's because I was completely naive about this process. Up until then, we'd we'd already been we'd done the structural edit where we just sort of move parts around and think about it in sort of broader terms. And there's not a lot of red pen in that. It's just sort of all right. Maybe we can um, give me a bit more here. We can sort of move that around um, in a way that makes sense. But when I got delivered that the the heavy edit, there were tears. There was I I there definitely was an hour there where I I swear this I I was going I was going to give the money back. I was going to take my book back and we were just going to be done with this whole thing. It really was, it had really? come to an end. Because in that moment of childish um, reaction, I looked at my work and I thought, you said you loved this thing. Where's the love in this? All you're doing is you're cutting, where's all the parts? And I think it was just that, again, that naivety. I've, I've never studied writing. I've never taken a creative writing subject. It's that stubborn, childish streak of me that wants to do it all on my own. Yes, that isolationist need. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so I think that was just the shock of seeing all that red pen. But then when I just took the emotion out of it and had a look at it, 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 was, it was miraculous. By the next morning, I was nearly in t I was. I wanted to go around to his house and give him a big bear. He'd saved my novel. He really had. He saw it in a, in a way, in a, in a clear, sober way that I, I never could at that stage. And from that moment on when I saw what, when I actually looked at what was behind all that red pen, I, I just saw someone who deeply understood my story and deeply understood me and was only trying to help me, you know, to have an Oprah moment to kind of be my best self. Be your best self. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it really was that. And uh, what a blessing. And you know, editing is, to some extent, it's a lottery. You know, I speak to other other writers. You you generally, even if you're a quite well-known author, you finish your book and 
whoever the editor is around at the moment that's your editor you get but what it's like it's like an arranged marriage you know it's you have to it's so well i found the experience incredibly intimate this is such a personal project for mm. you this was the one that connected for you and yeah. you only sent it to one publishing house yeah but what's it like now that other people get to reinterpret it it's it's interesting um I feel like I'm doing that alongside other people to some extent in a, in a way that feels very healthy to me. I've lost direct contact with this story and that's not a bad thing. I built this world and it's an intense world and I was there when it was happening and it was, an, it was a very intense place to be when I was writing this. I was in that world describing what happened and then I stepped out of that and I'm created this thing and I look down and it's like a like a glass marble with all the f cloud and the cracks in it but it's it is what it is and ever since then to some extent I feel a little bulletproof to some of this stuff only because I know what this thing is and I'm very proud of it and everything after that you know it's it's all it's a strange amusing experience and, and that's not to say you know this and it wasn't even about that I was writing this for myself. It wasn't even for me. I was trying to complete the story for itself. The story seemed to have its own internal logic and a world that I think needed to sort of come into being. And I feel like I did that. And it wasn't even about me or another reader. I built this thing and now it's here and it's on the shelf. And so everything that happens after that, it, and it's been amazing speaking to people who have read it and uh, responded to it. It's a, that's a very strange experience. But to some extent, I feel like I'm there with them. When I read, when I occasionally look through parts of this, in a, in a very nice way, it feels like it was written by someone else. It feels like it's this... It's almost uh, a shared collective experience now between people. Yeah, and, I, and maybe it's a kind of masochistic streak in me, but I... It, it kind of, I don't know. I, I honestly think if I got a, well, the thing is in Australia, it's very tricky to even get reviews, let alone bad reviews. Um, but if, you know. Hang on, don't go asking for bad <laughs> reviews because if you go on Goodreads, no. you'll find them. <laughs> I know, but um, I, I honestly, and I think it's to do with all, when I think of this book, I don't think of the few years it took to write it and get it published. I think of my whole life to this moment. And, you know, what's a bad reaction to that after a lifetime of putting into this thing it's you know it'd be like if someone insulted my mother i always think well i know that's not true so it kind of i'm a bit impervious to it it doesn't really affect me that much oh robert we went to different schools <laughs> <laughs> but having said that i've oh it's it's silly to say i've been brought to tears on more than several occasions over the last week by people and this is the part of the publishing process i'd never given a moment's thought to people coming up to you i went to the perth writers festival last week and people who have read your book and telling you about their experience of it and it's this or people getting in touch on twitter or sending me emails or um people in bookshops that i'm going to visit who have read it it's it's completing a circle that i've never completed before and it's a, there's such a power in that because that that truly is is this story coming into being it's someone reading it and filling in all that white space I built. And I feel like between, you know, it's a cliche to say, but between the two of us, we've built this thing together. And, and that's a beautiful thing. And, it's, and that's really, uh, you know, I'm done. 
with this book. It's it's overachieved on every possible level I could imagine in that it's it's connected with a person out there and it's such a beautiful thing. Yeah, Robert, it truly is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful story. It's sorrowful. It's rich. It's evocative. I, I got completely lost in it. Thank you so much for coming in and talking about it and um, we'll have to see what you do next now. I'm a little worried it's going to take another 18 books to get there. Uh, maybe it will and maybe that's a good thing. I, you know, who knows? But um, I'll do my best and thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Robert, thank you for coming in. And you can find Robert's book, The Everlasting Sunday, online and in stores right now. You can also follow Robert on Twitter and you can follow us at ConversationsWW. This is James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Thank you very much for listening.